Hi, and welcome to our brand new true crime podcast. I'm Steve. And I'm Elle. And And this this is is Depraved. Depraved. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to episode two of Depraved. Where we were talking about the Cook Brothers. Yeah, and if you remember last time we left off, um, we were talking about Bud Coates and Cheryl Bartlett, who were assaulted on January 27th of 1981. We are going to just jump right into this case here again and continue where we had left off. I know you may be excited to hear the end of the story. I'm excited to have you guys back. Thank you for coming back and listening again. Yes, thank you very much, guys. We hope you're enjoying it so far. So, where we left off was February 21st, 1981. And this one, guys... Well, it's not where we left off. This is where we're going to begin. Yeah, this is where we're starting out To finish fresh. off the... It, yeah. And this one is one that just socked me right in the gut. Dawn was 12 years old at this time. I have a almost 11-year-old myself and a 14-year-old, so they kind of bridge her age there. Really close. Yeah, and I can understand about what she was going through at that time, how her mentality was, and just can... Only imagine what it was like to be in her mother's shoes. I I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be in her mother's shoes. Dawn was an only child, and she was described as the light of her parents' lives. Being an only child as well, I'm sure that made things so hard on her parents. You know, they, once they lost Dawn, they didn't have any other kids there to make sure that they had something to take their minds off of this, something to push them to carry on. Imagine being a single parent and, or being a parent of a 12-year-old and have them murdered or come up missing and just, I, I, I would lose my shit. It, I don't even know what I would do, even having other children. I'm sure doesn't make it any easier, but at the same time, at least you have those other kids there to just, like I said, take your mind off of things. You have to go on for them. You've got to continue the day to day. And when it's an only child, you just have to think that this consumes your days. And... I don't remember if I said her full name, so just in case I didn't, this is Dawn Renee Backus. And again, she was 12 years old. She was described as a good kid who got good grades and never got into any serious trouble. It sounded like she was just one of those genuinely good kids. Which, they're hard to come across anymore. They are, very much so, but that also goes to... Speaking to her parents, I think she was, it sounds like she was raised right and she was heading in a good direction in life. On the night of February 21st, 
Dawn went to hang out with her friends, Sarah, Dorothy, and Peggy. Now, they went to this local teen hangout, but it's not the kind a lot of people think. It's not that... It's like where you're sitting in some back alley somewhere, smoking pot, drinking beers, doing <laughs> stupid stuff. Exactly. That's what I think a lot of us think, out, think about when we talk about teen hangouts, things like that. We think of the trouble they're getting into and those kind of things. But this was the kind of teen hangout where it seemed like a lot of kids in that neighborhood went and just had fun, ate pizza, played games, things like that. And I do believe I read somewhere that the owner of this place that they went even hired an off-duty police officer to be there on the weekends when he knew a lot of teens would be there to make sure that things didn't get out of hand if something did come up. Also to make sure the kids were safe. And it was, I'm sure, you know, parents just drop their kids off here with an understanding that, They just you know, felt comfortable that their kids are there and they're going to be under watch and nothing's going to happen to them. Yeah, and, you know, probably one of those, bye, have a good time, I'll be back here in the parking lot waiting for you at 10 o'clock, or... Whatever time it may be that they close. Yeah, or arrange something with another parent, hey, our girls are all going to go hang out together, could you drop my child off at this time? That, you know, I, I can remember oftentimes in school, even things like basketball practice, things like that, you know, my mom would get a hold of another parent and say, hey, we're not going to be able to pick her up. Could you give her a ride home? That that kind of stuff was so super common. Oh, yeah. And now, Dawn was dropped off with the understanding that she would get a ride home from Peggy's father. And she was to be home absolutely no later than 10.30 p.m. Now... I know we have sent our son over to friends' houses or other things, and we have told him our big one during the school is be home absolutely no later than 9 p.m. And the first time he comes walking in that door at 9.01... His ass is grass. He knows when we say absolutely no later than 9 p.m., we mean that. And there's a reason we mean that, so this way you can get his... Routine done to get ready for bed for school, to get his rest, and we're get ready to go. Yeah. Yeah, and we just want to know where he's at, that he's safe, that he's home safe. And when we say that, more often than not, he's walking in the door at about 8.45, making sure that he's here on time. Her parents were going out to a dinner party. It sounded something like maybe some co-workers or an employer, something like that, just getting together, hanging out, having a good time. They knew that Dawn was okay where she was at. She was going to get a ride home from Peggy's dad. You know, she'd be home. By the time they got home, she, if she was anything like our kids, she'd probably be passed out on the couch, and they'd have to wake her up and get her sleepy butt up to bed, giving her a kiss goodnight, and probably walking up the stairs behind her because she's so tired she's going to fall over backwards. That night it sounded like the girls were having a lot of fun. I read somewhere that maybe they were playing pinball. Pinball? <laughs> yeah, you remember pinball? Oh boy, do I. 
But I can remember going to the arcade in the mall when I was younger and playing pinball. Yeah, I remember going to the mall too and playing pinball. <laughs> Wasting quarters. <laughs> they need to bring back the pinball arcade machines in the mall. Just saying. Um, later that night, after the girls had been playing for a while, eating pizza, you know, getting to that point where they're probably getting tired, stuffing their faces, realizing... Oh, getting full. Exactly. Realizing that it's probably getting close to time to leave, they realize that Peggy isn't there. They soon find out pretty easily that she had ended up going home with another friend and probably completely completely forgetting that the other girls were supposed to get a ride with her dad. She had called her father. Now, wait a minute. You said Peggy. Don't you mean Dawn? No. Peggy was no longer there. She legitimately did go home with another friend. This was confirmed. And like I said, she had probably completely forgot that the other girls were supposed to be getting a ride home with her dad. And so when she got to that other friend's house, she called them and told them, Probably something along the lines of, Hey, Dad, can I spend the night at so-and-so's house? <laughs> mm. I remember doing that as a kid, going over to a friend's house, calling Mom, begging, Can I stay the night? And usually, since I was already there, it was, Whatever, I don't care, see you tomorrow. Mm. Well, like I said, she called her dad, and she told him that she didn't need a ride. So, obviously, he never showed up to get the other girls either. Um, the girls, obviously, getting a bit anxious because the last thing they wanted to do was to get in trouble with their parents because, again, it all sounded like they were genuinely good kids and they wanted to be home. Dawn did have a slip of paper with her at one point in time in the night that her parents had given her that had the number on it of the place that they would be that night. However, like any typical kid, probably pulling quarters out of her pocket, she dropped the slip dropped of paper. It, really, she dropped it. And... Yeah, and she couldn't find it, couldn't get a hold of her parents. Didn't want to get in trouble. Her mom had told her they would be calling to check in on her, make sure she was home. So she just figured it's best to go home and... Get home however they could. The three girls decided that they would just walk home. You know, they can walk most of the way together. It's their own neighborhood. Nothing's happened before. Nothing will happen this time. Keyword, before. Yeah, and, you know, these girls were between the ages of 12 and 15. I'm sure that was the last thing that was crossing their mind, that something was going to happen. They're thinking, okay, we'll walk home together. We may have to split up a couple blocks before home. But as a kid back in the 90s, I remember doing this all the time, you know, walking halfway to a friend's house or whatever, meeting in the middle, and then we'd split up and walk our own ways home, and oftentimes even in the dark, and it wasn't a big thing to us then, and it wasn't a big thing to our parents, it just, it seemed like a much safer time then. Exactly. The girls took off and started walking. And they did come to that point where they needed to separate and say their goodbyes. And it sounds like, for all the girls, they were only a few blocks from their homes. Now, Dawn needed to head south on Secor to get to her house, where Sarah and Dorothy needed to turn 
east on Central. Okay. So Dawn starts heading in her direction. Sarah and Dorothy start heading in their direction. And that's the last... Goodbye. See you tomorrow. Yeah, and I'm sure like typical girls, they're half a block away, still yelling and waving at each other. Right. Well, around 11 p.m., Dawn's mother calls home as promised. She just wanted to make sure that Dawn had made it home safely and on time. And at this point in time, she gets a busy signal. And if you remember the days of landlines and busy signals, it happened all too often. Mm. So, of course, she thinks, okay, she's made it home safe. She's probably on the phone with her friends. Talking it up. Yeah, and... Talking about what all happened today. (laughs) Who they've got a crush on. And thinks... You know, I'll just call back a little while later, check on her, and everything will be okay. However, it's later found that the reason the phone was busy was because Dawn's friends had also been calling at the same time to make sure she made it home okay. Yeah, that was really common back in the day of calling. You had two people calling at the same time. It came up as a busy signal on both ends that were trying to call. Yeah, because... Dawn's friends had also received that same busy signal that we find out later. So, they had obviously been calling at the exact same time, which... Which very rarely happens, but it can happen. It can happen, yeah. And I don't know for sure, but it sounds like maybe Dawn's two other friends, maybe one was spending the night at the other's house, something of the sort. So, they knew they were walking together. Dawn had walked alone. They just call her, make sure she made it home okay. Maybe even a parent said, hey, call her, check on her, make sure she made it home okay. Well, when Dawn's mom tries to call her again a little while later, she doesn't get any answer. At this point, she really starts to worry. I would be the same way if my child is supposed to be somewhere at a certain time and they're not answering the phone, I can't get a hold of them, I lose my stuff. I just, I go completely insane until I finally hear from them. I know at one point in time, our oldest was home about half an hour late from work. and Oh, I remember this day. I had darn near organized oh, a you had search a, party. <laughs> you almost had the freaking National Guards getting called. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. Yeah, and... Come to find out, his phone had just died at work. He wasn't able to call me and let me know that he clocked out a little bit late and everything was okay. But, like I said, it was only half an hour and I was crazed. I didn't know where my kid was and I was in a panic. So, I can kind of understand the feeling that she was going through at the time. So, they gathered up their things and headed home. They were going to make sure she was okay. When she wasn't in the house when they got there, and there was absolutely no sign of her or no sign that she had been there or where she could be, they immediately started calling the friends that Dawn had been with that night. And at that point, those friends tell her the story of what had transpired and that they had last seen her walking just a few blocks from home. At this point, the mama bear... She knows that there is absolutely no way her daughter should be out this long, 
she knows her daughter. You know, we all know our kids. She knows that if she's out, she was supposed to be walking home. Her friend said she was walking home. Most likely it means that she was going home. Exactly. And if she's not there, there must be something or someone keeping her from being home. Exactly. So at this point, she immediately calls police to report her daughter missing. I would do the same thing. The days drag on, and even though they have all sorts of people out looking for her, I'm sure mom and police, everyone had organized search parties. You know, 12-year-old girls don't just vanish. No, no, they don't. There's absolutely no trace of her. They can't find her anywhere, and no, nothing, no signs, no sightings, and... That's one thing that's weird to me because so many times people do go missing and there are even false sightings of them. But there was just absolutely nothing in this case. But on Wednesday, February 25th, police got an anonymous tip that there was a body in the basement of a local abandoned state theater. Police arrive at this point and locate what the man was talking about and find the gruesome discovery it was gone. She had been tortured, sexually assaulted, and her skull had been smashed by a cinder block that was laying close by. Jeez, they really did a number on her, didn't they? From the sounds of it, they just completely tortured this poor girl. I cannot imagine what she was going through there at the end. She had defensive wounds on her hands. She truly fought for her life. She was going to do anything she could to make it out of there. But as we later find out, two grown men on one teenage girl. Well, two grown <laughs> assholes that are little cowards and got to attack a little girl. It just doesn't seem they're victim type either. I don't know what happened here for this to occur. I, I'm wrong thinking place, it just came to, they just kept, didn't care. They were just wrong place, wrong time. They were just going to do what they were going to do. I had read, though, in this case that that basement was so dark that they ended up calling in the fire department to bring their floodlights in to illuminate the scene so they could see what evidence was there, you know, things like that. Obviously, they need light to work by. And even, and even the floodlights that the fire department had brought in did very little to illuminate the area. So that just tells you how... How huge this basement really is. It's huge and dark, dark and, and... Gloomy. And like I said, this place had been abandoned for years. So there probably wasn't even a, any electricity ran to it anymore. Well, I about imagine. Well... The first thing I thought of when I heard this is whoever called in that tip must have known something. Yeah, because it's just, it's just weird. Somebody know there's a body in a basement of an abandoned building. Yeah, it, to me, well, and so oftentimes we see where perpetrators or unsubs, whatever you want to call them, will insert themselves into an investigation, something like this. They want their handiwork to be seen. Mm-hmm. Well, the man that called this in obviously seemed suspect to the police as well. But 
he did later come forward and was completely cleared. There was nothing connecting him to this at all. It sounds like he maybe just stumbled upon this. Who knows what he was doing down there. Well, it could have been a, he seen a door open, didn't look right, kind of checked into it a little bit because I know that this building's abandoned. Yeah. Could have been kids in there doing some damage that they don't know about. Yeah, it, it never said why he went in there or how he found her body. It just did say that he was completely cleared. There was absolutely nothing linking him to it. And the only reason he had called in anonymously in the first place was because he, he was just, just scared. Yeah, he was scared. He didn't want to get involved. Even though, again, there was not much evidence to go on. Detectives are, at this point, starting to see a pattern in crimes. They're starting to suspect that they're all being committed by the same person or persons. It would later be discovered that Anthony had been driving home from work that night, around the time that the girls were walking home and had seen Dawn. He, at this point, forced her into his truck and went to pick up Nathaniel, and the brothers committed this crime together. I I cannot imagine what was going through Dawn's mind when this happened. She had to be scared out of her mind. I'm I'm sure she was. And this poor little girl. The thing that struck me so off about this is that Anthony saw her when he was alone. And he actually took the time to go pick up Nathaniel. So they could do this together. On March 27th, 1981, we come to the case of Scott Moulton, 21, and Denise Sayokowski? If we're pronouncing these names wrong, we're sorry. We're, we're trying our best. Denise was 22 years old at this time. Um, the pair were friends who had met while working together at a local grocery store. Their boss described them as dependable, hard workers with great personalities. And this particular day, they had plans to meet with some other co-workers that evening for drinks, but they never did arrive. Hmm. On... March 30th, both of them were reported missing to local police by their families. And again here, we see a couple day gap from the time That's they... That's a big, big gap there. Yeah. They went missing on March 27th and then were reported missing on March 30th. But again, like I said before, it's... A very common belief that, especially as adults, you have to wait 24 to 72 hours to report a missing because, you know, they could have just ran off, whatever. Although... Or they're just on their own for a little bit, just need some time. And it's hard to say. Yeah, and I know that this happens sometimes. I actually just saw a case the other day on Facebook where someone had put out a plea to help them find their brother and come to find out he was perfectly safe and... Off in New Mexico, doing his own thing, and everything was good. But I do have to say that 
I personally would much rather call police and report my loved one missing and have everyone out searching for him just to say later, oops, crap, sorry, big mistake. I was wrong. We were wrong. They're okay. Sorry for everybody's hassle. Yeah, and I would much rather that than to go back and realize what could I have done had I just recorded a missing yourself in the ass in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. Although in this case, it doesn't seem like it would have mattered no matter how soon they reported him missing. Nothing was going to prevent what happened. On April 3rd, which is a couple days later still, police got a call from an apartment manager at Fountain Circle Apartments in Oregon, Ohio. Now, you and I both know that Oregon is very close to Toledo. Yes. But other people around here may not know that. It's pretty much like you could really just throw a stone into the next town. Yeah, because I it all would... pretty much well nowadays it all butts together, but I'm sure back then it probably wasn't butting together. From, I would assume. From what I was reading, it sounds like it was still very much that way. All those areas: Perrysburg, Rossford, Oregon, Ottawa Hills. They were all pretty much suburbs of Toledo, even though they're their own towns, they have all their own pol- or police forces, things like that. They're all like they are now, where they're pretty much buttoned up against each other. Yeah, you drive out of one and into the other within a block. It's They're that close. Well, this apartment manager had called police because there was a car that didn't belong to any of the tenants. And it had been parked in this carport there for a couple of days. This was obviously very suspicious because I'm sure in most apartment complexes, I know some of the ones I'm familiar with. They they have your driver's uh, license plate and all that stuff in their records and they can look it up and see if... Yeah. And oftentimes for parking spots like with carports or garages, things like that at apartment buildings, you're actually paying a separate rent amount for that area. So to have a car that's not supposed to be there may even be taking up someone who is paying for it. Who knows? But this, obviously, like I said, this apartment manager called police. It was suspicious, and police did arrive. And when they got there, they noticed that the tags of the car were registered to Denise, who obviously at this time was reported missing. They found the doors to be unlocked with no real evidence of anything happening inside, but they did... Now, I believe they got a hold of a family member to get a spare set of keys for her car. Because if you remember at this time, these cars... They had two keys. One was for your engine, one was for your door and trunk. Yeah, because... It's not like it is now where you just hit a button inside and your trunk pops. (laughs) Yeah. You actually had to have a key to get into your trunk. Which a key also went in for your glove box. Yep. And. Boy, I'm old. (laughs) When they ended up getting into the trunk of this car, they did find the bodies of both Scott and Denise. Scott had been shot three times in the head and once in the back. And Denise had been shot five times in the head, and all of these were with a twenty-two caliber weapon. To be shot five times in the head and 
what was it, three times in, a, in the back of the head and body yeah, or whatever? they were both shot multiple times in the head. Yeah, it's just, you'd have to for a twenty-two pistol, or pistol, rifle, whatever it is. From what I remember of reading about this case as well, it was kind of different from the other cases in the fact that it seems like both of them were shot and killed while in the trunk of the car. That's weird. Yeah. So. Because the rest of the victims were shot outside of a vehicle or in a building of some sort. So to be shot in the back of the trunk. He must have forced them into the trunk first and then. Yeah. That's, that's just, that's just weird. Why, why would you change your MO? Uh, you know, I'm not sure that he really did change his MO so much as it was just how it worked out for this crime. Because if you remember back in the beginning with Thomas, he ended up, he did put his body in the trunk of a car. So that does seem to be an ele element in some Yeah, but days. still, they were still, he was shot outside of the car. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Maybe I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking wrong here, but to me it just seems weird that he would change it to they're in the trunk and then shoot him in the trunk. I think you might be thinking a little too much into it. Yeah, could be. On August 2nd, 1981, Daryl Cole was 31 and Stacy Bolinek was 21. And again, some of these last name guys, I'm really trying. I hope I'm getting it right. If you know the correct pronunciation, Feel free to message me. Let me know. I am not going to be offended in any sort of way. So the two were very young. And the relationship was just over a year old. The families do say that they were getting very serious. And even starting to discuss marriage. That night the couple had had a fun filled evening. They were visiting with Stacy's sister and her husband. As well as Stacy's brother. It sounds like they were just having a typical, fun family game night. Sounds like they were all probably around the same age. Just chit-chatting. Enjoying themselves. They ended up leaving the others at around 2 a.m. and headed for home. However, they never made it home. At this point in time, Daryl was attending UT and worked at Center Market for extra money towards college. Stacy worked in a store in shoe sales and sometimes even filled in as a department manager when needed, but she really had dreams of becoming a respiratory therapist later on. The pair had been dating for about a year and had actually just returned from vacation to Daytona Beach. Daytona Beach. Beautiful place. It sounds like a dream vacation right now when we're stuck here in this dreary winter state in Ohio. It's just been miserable. Mm. At about 4 p.m. on Sunday, when Stacy's family had not heard from either of them, they knew that something had to be seriously wrong. It wasn't like them to just up and go anywhere without saying something to anyone. Had they planned on going somewhere else, they would have told... Stacy's sister or brother, something of that sort. Somebody somewhere would have known where they were at at some point, where they were, where they were going or what they were doing. 
Yeah, and it seems like they were the type of couple that they didn't hide anything from anyone. They would have let someone know what was going on. The family had reported the couple missing at that point in time, and they launched a massive search of their own. It sounds like they just got on the phone, started making phone calls, getting anyone and everyone who was available to come out and just start looking for these people and looking for their car, any sign of them just hitting the pavement. On Friday, August 3rd, at about 8.15 p.m., their car was spotted by one of the people that the family had out searching. When Stacy's mom was notified of this, she immediately went to the location of the car and realized that the doors were unlocked. And when she opened the car doors, she knew right away what the stench was. She knew that it was the smell of death coming from the inside of that car. Ugh. And to relate the smell, knowing that this was the vehicle that your daughter and her boyfriend were supposed to be in had to be absolutely terrifying. And at that point, it said that she just began pounding on the lock trunk, screaming, I know they're in there. I know they're in there. They called police, and when they arrived, they ended up having to pry open the trunk because, again, you couldn't get into it without a key. And Stacy's mom's worst nightmare was realized when the bodies of both Stacy and Daryl were, in fact, in the trunk of the car. Stacy had received very heavy trauma to her head, and both of her eyes were black and swollen shut. Her teeth had been knocked out, and her jaw and her neck had been broken. Holy crap. She was completely brutalized. She, like the other female victims, had been sexually assaulted and was redressed at this time. Daryl had also been beat to death. And the weapon that was believed to have been used was Daryl's own aluminum baseball bat that he kept in the trunk with his other baseball equipment. So, now we're using a ball bat to kill people. Yeah. And, like the last case, here again, we're involving the trunk of a car. And it, it seems at this point, like many serial killers, he's starting to, what they call, devolve. He's just using whatever he can he's getting more sloppy he's not as organized as maybe some of the earlier crimes he just sees the victim and he goes after him okay so here's my question so they used his own ball bat to beat the living crap out of him mm -hmm. and was this bat still there or do we not know we don't know that See, I'm really, really hoping that that bat was still there. That they could pull fingerprints off of that ball bat and compare the fingerprints to who's who. I, if the ball bat was still there, I never, I don't believe fingerprints were ever recovered because I didn't see that anywhere later in the case at all. Okay. I, I mean, I just, to me, I would think that, you know, you, the ball bat might still be there. That's, that's a very good idea. And being on aluminum, you would think that they would be able to get fingerprints off of it. But at this time, I don't know how good fingerprint technology was 
if they would have been able to get a usable print that may have been smudged or something well, like that. Yeah, I get that because, you know, if you're swinging the bat, you're still moving your fingers in the process of swinging. So, yeah, they might not get a good fingerprint, but they can get an idea of maybe one or two fingers might get a good yeah. hit on them. I, I like that logic, but like I said, I just, I didn't see anything about it in the case. We are nearing the grand finale here. On September 18th, 1981, Todd Sabo, Leslie and Peter Sawicki. Todd and Leslie were sitting in an apartment parking lot when they were approached by a man who suddenly pulled a gun and forced them back into their van. At this point, he tied up Todd and only partially tied Leslie for some reason, probably because then she was forced to undress like so many of the females before. Leslie was able to break free and clawed at him very viciously from what I understand. And while this distraction was going on, Todd was able to free himself from his restraints got into the middle of it, and wrestled the gun from the man. Okay. He, at this point in time, screamed for Leslie to run. Just run. Go get yourself out of here. So, basically, Leslie is a bad bitch. Fought her way, no matter what it was going to take, and enough to distract them so Todd can do what he had to do to get loose and the perpetrator had no idea of what was going on. Yeah, and as we'll later find out with this case, I think there are a couple of things that helped. Um, first of all, this is a crime that we find out later that Anthony committed on his own. Nathaniel wasn't with him. So it was two on one the other way around this time. Also... We find out that Todd is a wrestler at UT. Ah. So, yeah, he's pretty good at moving out of... He's strong. He's agile. He can... Move around if he needs to to get where he needs to be. Exactly. Well, Leslie takes off running and is able to get to a phone and calls police. The sad part about this is... When she calls 911, she is automatically directed to Ottawa Hills Police Department because it was the closest police department. They were like 0.2 miles away, so literally just a couple blocks up the road. Okay, yeah, that makes, makes sense that he would go to get shipped to the, the closest dispatch. Yeah, however, they denied any response to this because it was quote-unquote not in their jurisdiction. So. Are you kidding me? Not at all. And I'm not sure exactly how all this works, what all the jurisdictions mean, what even their power is to go into a different jurisdiction. I don't know. I don't know. Well, it, see, my, my thing is, if, if any listeners have how this works, please let us know how this works, because I'm, I'm mind blown here how this is going down. I'm... 
like I said, I am not sure at all why this happened or maybe they didn't understand the extent of what was going on. But I do know that they forwarded the call to Toledo, Toledo Police Department and they responded to the call. However, after Leslie hung up the phone with them, she called her father, Peter. I'm sure because after what she had just gone through, what she had seen, she just wants daddy. Right. I completely understand that. Well, due to the lack of quick police response, because remember, Toledo's coming and they're much further away than Ottawa. Right. Hills. Peter arrived at the scene first. Okay. And being any typical dad. He's ready to kick ass and take names later. Exactly. He flies into a complete rage and instantly began attacking the man who was at this point still struggling with Todd. During the struggle with Peter, the man somehow managed to get a hold of the gun that Todd had previously dropped. Now, I do believe it was something of Peter and him were struggling and the man ended up falling to the ground. Todd had dropped this gun and this man was just lucky enough to fall close to it. And he ended up picking the gun up and shot Peter. And unfortunately, Peter did not survive his injuries. He died from what I believe I have read nearly instantly. Some point in time, I'm not sure if it was during this struggle or during the earlier struggle, he did shoot Todd twice, but he did survive his injuries. The man took off at this time because finally someone was able to make him scared for his life and he ran. Good. Only, this is what absolutely amazed me about this part. Just a month after this attack, after being shot twice, Todd returned to UT to wrestle and finished second at the Mid-American Conference Tournament. Holy crap. That is some dedication. <laughs> yeah. Weeks after this, an informant came forward to police and turned in Anthony Cook as the perpetrator of this crime. Police were able to get a warrant and on March, in March of 1982, he was pulled over on the interstate and he surrendered without incident. I believe that there must have been some evidence in this latest case. I didn't find out exactly what all evidence was found, but it had to have been something of some something substantial because he was indicted for the aggravated murder of Peter, the attempted murder of Todd, aggravated robbery of Todd, and the attempted rape of Leslie. He was also ind indicted for a robbery attempt against a man named Charles Hackenberg and a kidnapping of Janie Fall. He had tried to abduct Janie earlier at some point but she somehow managed to get away from him and run for help. And at this point in time, when she got to someone, he 
being a coward, took off. And with Charles, he had approached him and his girlfriend while they were sitting in their car. Sound familiar? Mm. And pointed a gun at them. But this time, just as he did this, his girl, Charles' girlfriend, her brother, had came out onto the porch of the house and yelled over to him. And they said something to Anthony about, he's not the only one in there. Try something and they'll come after you. And I believe Anthony said something of the effect of, dude, I believe you, and took off running. Coward little bitch. Yeah, because he couldn't face anyone, you know, that he didn't have a gun pointed in their face. The trial against Anthony started on March 2nd of 1982 and lasted about 11 days. Closing arguments alone took five hours. Wow. So it took five hours for the closing arguments? Yeah. Five hours seems like an awfully long time to be talking. You know, we've been at this for a couple hours now, and my voice already feels like it's going hoarse. Well, during this time, Anthony took the stand in his own defense. He tried saying that it was all a huge misunderstanding. This all went down because it was a drug deal gone bad. Right. Drug deal gone bad. Yeah. When all these people were clean of all that kind of stuff. Well, if you remember, this was just in the trial against Todd, Leslie, and Peter. I see where you're, okay. Because at this point in time, he had not been connected yet back to the others. All the rest of them. Yeah. Okay. Well, the jury went out and deliberated, and they ended up deliberating for several hours the first night. And at that point in time, it was decided that they would just be sequestered and get back to it the next morning. And when they went back the next morning, they deliberated for a few more hours. And it was about 12 hours in total before they came to a verdict. Wow. In most cases, the longer the deliberations go on, typically they come back with a not guilty verdict or a hung jury, something like that. Usually... Or you have that one person who just won't change their mind of what they... Yeah. Need to have an even amount of it, so is that... Usually they say the quicker the, ver- the jury comes back with a verdict, usually that means guilty. Mm. Well, in this case, however, when the jury came back and they started reading everything off, they found Anthony not guilty of aggravated murder. This was of Peter. However, they did find him guilty of the lesser charge of murder. In the charge of attempted murder for Todd, they found him guilty. Aggravated robbery of Todd, they found him guilty. And attempted rape of Leslie, they found him guilty. He was handed down the longest sentence allowed by law at the time. He was given 15 to life for murder and 5 to 25 each for the remaining charges to be conserved to be served consecutively with each other, but concurrently with the murder charge. So essentially, 
he would have to serve, if I'm correct here, he would have to serve the 15 to life first, and then the additional 5 to 25, because those all run together. Okay. The rest of the indictments, which were for the robbery attempt against Charles Hackenberg and the kidnapping of Janie Fall, those both were dismissed by the court. At this time, police suspected Anthony of the other cases, but they, they weren't quite sure. They just, I think most of them were pretty darn sure. They just didn't have enough evidence to pursue a court case against it. And we all know Double Jeopardy, they're, if they're going to bring him to court, if they're going to charge him with this, they're going to make darn sure they have enough evidence to convict. Make sure of reduction row and yeah. dot your eyes and cross your T's. Yeah. And uh, Detective Stiles, whose book I actually read, which is excellent, um, called The Evil Brothers. I got a lot of my information for this case out of that book. Um, I think he was pretty darn certain that Nathaniel, his brother, was helping him at least with some of these crimes. But again, they just didn't have the evidence to back it up. At this point in time, we're going to fast forward about 15 years. <laughs> Anthony all this time was rotting in prison right where he belongs. And at this time, Lucas County had a prosecutor named Julia Bates. And she was just beginning to learn of all the cases that were being closed using DNA evidence at this time. And obviously, this was a fairly new science. Everyone was jumping on the bandwagon, figuring all this out. Well, she contacted Stiles. Like I said, he was... At this time, now a former Toledo police detective. Um, but she knew that he had some theories on the Cook brothers. And she wanted to know what these were and have him put together a list for her of the cases he believed that they had committed or were connected, things like that. At this point in time, he actually ended up going to work for the prosecutor's office as an investigator for them. Okay. Once he had sent this list over to her and she started going through the evidence that they still had, they realized that they still had a very good sample of DNA from the semen that was left in Pogorski's panties the day that she was attacked. They... Obviously, instantly set the, sent this out for testing. While it was out for testing, they brought Pogorski in for a photo lineup, and she was able to immediately identify Nathaniel as one of her attackers. And obviously, if you remember, Nathaniel was Anthony's brother, and at this point in time, he is walking free because they didn't have enough evidence to do anything against him. Well, when she was able to identify him in a photo lineup, they were able to get an arrest warrant for him. Um, the arrest warrant was for aggravated murder, and they brought him in. So, okay, she's seen the, the photo of him. Mm -hmm. Did anybody do a sketch 
of either one of these brothers? At one point in time, I do believe there was a sketch done of one of the brothers. Um, I'm not sure where it was. I'm thinking it may have been after this very last case with Leslie, Todd, and Peter. But I don't think anything came up, came from the sketch. Well, the reason I ask is I remember I quickly glanced through the book here and mm -hmm. there. And I remember seeing a sketch of one of the brothers. Yeah. Who kind of looked like, where's Waldo? If you ask me. If you take a quick glance at it. <laughs> yeah, actually, if you do decide to look up the picture of this sketch or get the book, or we may even try to get a picture of it and put it on our Facebook page, maybe some pictures of the victims as well, so you can kind of get an idea more of this case. We'll get on there and we'll try to find those and get them on there. What I found kind of weird about the sketch myself is if you look back to the booking photos of both of the brothers, the sketch kind of looks like a mix of the two of them together. I did notice that. It looked like, you know, a little bit of this brother is on the sketch and a little bit of this brother is on the sketch, and yeah. Yeah, he looks like he has, the sketch looks like it's Anthony's beard with Nathaniel's eyes, just things like that. But then again, I'm looking at this knowing who the sketch is of. True. So. Anyways, back to the case. Um, they brought Nathaniel into custody, and at this point in time, they were able to get a warrant for his DNA. Now, they had already had Anthony's DNA, because in the state of Ohio, with many violent crimes, when you are put into prison, they automatically take a sample of your DNA. They sent in both of these samples for testing against the DNA that they had collected in the Pogorski case. And when it came back, it was a match for both of the brothers. Okay. They were each charged with aggravated murder and commission of a robbery, aggravated murder and commission of a rape, and aggravated murder and commission of a kidnapping. Now, these may sound like three different cases, but they're not. They are all for... All one case. Yes, they are all for the case where Pogorski was attacked and her boyfriend was killed. What they did, though, is they attached all three of these on there because even though, since it is the same crime, they could only be convicted of one of them, they just knew attaching all three of them would give them a more... Better chance. Yeah, a better chance of convicting them of at least one of them in the long run. Okay, it make, makes sense. Nathaniel ended up being charged on February 20th of 1998, and Anthony was charged on May 29th of 1999. Why such a different in, difference in dates? I'm not sure. Maybe they weren't as worried about Anthony at that point because he was already behind bars. They were more focused on Nathaniel. I'm not sure. I w never did find an explanation for that. Now, this leads us to the part of the case that just cut me to my core. I cannot understand why they did this. I can to a point, but at the same time, I, I sit here thinking they had so much on them, they could have gotten so much better. So, what did you find? They ended up offering 
both Anthony and Nathaniel a plea agreement. Okay. And it went something like this. Anthony would plead guilty to the murder of Todd Gordon and admit to any other homicide committed in Lucas County. And then he was also to take a polygraph after this to confirm he was telling the truth. As we both know... The polygraphs aren't really all that upholding in court. No, polygraphs cannot be court evidence at all, and it's really unreliable. There are so many ways to pass a polygraph that it's unbelievable. That's why they can't be used in court. So, I'm, I'm hoping they recorded this. I'm sure they did to some extent, but I guess my thing is, he could have been, he could have not told the entire truth. Some of it, yeah, he did. He did confess to some. But who's to tell he was telling the entire truth? If he figured out how to pass this polygraph with some simple tricks, you know, controlled breathing, things like that, you can pass a polygraph. We have no way of knowing if he was telling the full truth at this time. Now, in exchange for this, though, they told him that he would not be prosecuted for any of these other homicides he admitted to during this time. What, why, why would he not be prosecuted? It was just all a part of the plea deal. It was something to get him to admit to these crimes and try to give these families some closure. I'm... I'm really not sure why they didn't try to go full Monty after this guy. Maybe they didn't think they'd have enough evidence to go after him for the other crimes. I just don't know. Um, they did, however, tell him, and it was put into his agreement, that if they ever found out he was lying, they found evidence of other homicides, things like that, that his deal was done they would prosecute him to the fullest extent of the law for all of it. Now, sure. with Nathaniel's case, he would plead guilty to attempted murder and two counts of kidnapping. And he would also have to waive the statute of limitation on his crimes because I do believe it was out of the statute of limitations for kidnapping. There is none for murder, so that's the only thing I could think of in this case. In turn, with Nathaniel, he would be actually sentenced for what was 21 to 75 years. However, it was understood he would be released in 20 years as long as he also committed to his crimes and took a polygraph. Okay. At this point in time, the victims and their families had agreed to this deal. I think part of it was they just wanted closure. They wanted to see the end of it. And they weren't sure if going any other route, they would ever get their day in court. Mm. So on April 3rd, 2000, the confessions began. They brought both the brothers in. They sat them down, I'm sure, with a tape recorder or something of the sort. And basically just let them have their say. Now, reading through the book... Oh, well, wait a minute. Before we go any longer, I'm sure being in the 2000s, 
that somebody had a video camera in the process of them doing this to make sure that they're actually talking to the right people and not a different voices on the recording. So this way it covers their their rear in the in the long run. Oh yeah, I'm sure there there was probably a lot of different things in place. They just never specifically said what it was. Right. Now, in the book I read over this, both the men had a lot to say about their crimes. But a lot of it was very, very detailed, very graphic, not kind to the victims at all. So I am not going to give them their say. I do not want to give them a voice in any way, shape, or form. They don't deserve a voice in this. Exactly. So I'm not going to get into everything that they had to say about it. I'm just going to kind of summarize what happened out of it all. So Anthony admitted to killing Vicki Small. He admitted to doing this alone. He admitted to the Stacy Bolinek and Daryl Cole case and said he did this alone. He did, admitted to the Denise and Scott case and said he did this alone. He admitted to Connie Thompson and said that Nathaniel did help with this. He also admitted to Don Backus and again admitted to doing this with Nathaniel. The Thomas, Gordon, and Sandra Pogorski case, which if you remember, Sandra was the one that was able to identify Nathaniel in the lineup. He admitted to, and obviously he did that with Nathaniel because she was able to identify him in the lineup. Cheryl Bartlett and Arnold Bud Coates, he admitted to as well, and again said this was with Nathaniel. The brothers both did pass their polygraph tests. However, like we said, we know that these are highly unreliable. Nathaniel did admit to the cases that Anthony said he was a part of as well. But the police had high suspicions of them in some other cases as well. They adamantly refused these cases, and when asked about um, one specific one, in the polygraph, they said they had nothing to do with it, and they passed. The only one they asked about specifically was Michelle Hoffman, because she was the niece of, I do believe, a Toledo police uh, officer. Mm. However, they also believed that they were involved in the case of Lorena Zimmerman, Cindy Anderson, and Mark Weiler. Like I said, I didn't get into their cases as much, because... They did not admit to them. They had nothing to do with their court cases. They weren't a part of the plea deal, anything like that. It was just a idea that some of the detectives had that they may have been a part of. I think at this point it's important to note that both of these brothers, at one point in time or another, were long-haul truck drivers. So that would actually make sense now if you sit down and think about the breaking of the times of you know how long it was because they could have been on long hauls or you know I never even thought about it that way that really makes a lot of sense if they were out 
on a long haul, obviously they wouldn't be back in Toledo or Lucas County to commit crimes. However, the police and I myself wonder how many other victims could be out there. Exactly. It could be in other states that we don't even know about. Yeah, and they may not have necessarily been connected to him because especially back in those times, you know, records were not computerized. Even today, a lot of those records aren't computerized. They're so backlogged on things like this that they may not see a pattern here. They may not know they're connected. I do hope, however, that if nothing else, these men live long enough that if they are guilty of cases in other states, that they are be able to be brought to justice for those cases and the families given closure. Yeah, you're not the only one because these two pieces of shits don't deserve. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually brings me right up to where we're at now and. That's the uh, victim impact statements that were read in court during their sentencing. And I just wanted to read a few of these because I thought it's very important to get the family's words on these. And they had a lot of things to say, obviously. The first one was read by Laddie Small Russell. She was Vicky's mom. And she said... Okay, now, Vicky was the 12-year-old, if I remember correctly. No. No. The 12-year-old was Dawn. Vicky oh, was the okay. very first victim. Okay. There were so many of them, I got them all... Yeah. Yeah, it's easily... Going through a case this quickly, it's very easy to get names confused, things like that. But Vicky was the very first victim. And actually, when you read through the case, you realize that when Anthony committed or admitted to these crimes. The police were kind of surprised when he admitted to Vicky because they had not even tied her to him. Hmm. Laddie Small Russell had this to say. How could any living thing do this? They can't be. They aren't human. Vicky's younger sister had to identify the body. I wish it were up to me to sentence you, but the law has its own rules. I cry every day, and I will cry until the day I die. Now, just so you guys know, some of these I have shortened because a lot of them get to be very long. And we only have so much time we can do these. Yeah, and I'm not trying to offend any families or victims by this. I've tried to keep in some of the most poignant parts of these and give you an idea of what was said. So, Sandra Pogorski herself, um, now Sandra Rollins, had prepared a statement. She was in court when they were sentenced, but became so distraught and upset that she ended up having to leave, and someone ended up reading the statement for her. It read... I cannot comprehend how people could brutalize, terrorize, rape, and destroy my life and the lives of so many others. You, Anthony, and Nathaniel have committed these violent acts, and for your actions, you must pay your debt to society. I forgive you. A lot of people will not and cannot, but I couldn't live with myself if I carried the hatred you have carried with you for so long. This kind of hatred will eat a person alive as it has done to you. These violent acts of crime you have introduced into my life are burned into my mind, heart, and soul. 
this is something you just don't let go of. You have burdened me every single day of my life with the guilt, the guilt of a survivor. And reading this, it just broke my heart because that was something when I read her story, I had wondered if she may have had some survivor's guilt. You hear about it so often, but if she's out there somewhere, I hope she realizes that she did everything she could and there is no guilt in this. No, no guilt at all. This brings us to Sharon Backus, now Sharon Wright. This was Dawn's mom. And if I do say so myself, this woman is a badass bitch. She tore these guys in two and for very good reason. And she said, for 12 years, I was Dawn's mother. They murdered her and I'm only supposed to have three minutes to tell you how I feel. Let me tell you exactly how I feel. I didn't have Dawn's final moments of life to tell her I loved her. The brothers had used the cover of darkness to hide their cowardly ways and to snatch our 12-year-old innocent child. They plea bargained for their lives, but what if Dawn could have asked for another day? I will never know how long you kept my little girl in that dirty theater basement, torturing and raping her. Their ugly faces were the last thing Dawn saw on this earth, which must have seemed like an eternity for her. These slimy creatures of earth that took my most precious gift from God need to be flushed down the gutter. I have some peace of mind knowing someday they will die too, and they have a sure ticket to burn in hell and to meet the devil himself. I pray their fate will be to end up as Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> I hope they suffer the pain they inflicted on Don that night. Yes. If you don't know what the fate of Jeffrey Dahmer was, he was brutally beaten and killed while in prison by another inmate. Oh, Yeah, so sad, right? It breaks my heart. Not. <laughs> Our next one was read by Hank. This was Denise's brother. He said, My family looked forward to dancing at her wedding. Instead, we cried at her funeral. Her loss caused my parents to suffer severe depression, from which my father never recovered. He lost his will to live and died a few years later a broken man. This just goes to show you how much of an impact the loss of a child has on a parent, and especially losing a child in this manner. I can only, under, only imagine what these parents went through. And then the siblings, too. Like in this case, not only losing a sister, but losing his father as well. Mm. Gotta be really hard. Our next statement was read by Stephen Moulton. This was Scott's brother. He said, I still find it very difficult to put my feelings into words that can describe our family's loss without becoming verbally vicious towards the Cook brothers. Brother being a keyword is that is what I lost and I can never get back. There can be no punishment in this world that could repay my family for taking my brother's life. These two individuals have shown they have no respect for human life other than their own. Yep. And last, we have a statement from Kelly Barton, who was Connie's niece. She 
spoke very fondly of Connie, calling her a surrogate sister and reinforcing how wonderful she was as a person, and ended by saying, We now have the opportunity to see some sort of justice for Connie and the other victims. The value these men placed on life is cheap, and we feel their life should have no higher value than those they stole. These two men are animals and deserve, no deserve nothing less than death themselves. Rabid and vicious dogs are put to death. They deserve the same. And Kelly, I have to say, I agree with you. In death penalty cases, I'm often in a gray area because I think, you know, we can't get it 100% right 100% of the time. Exactly. And I always worry about people going to prison and... Do we have the right person getting the treatment that exactly deserves being, for this, this the crime? Exactly. Being put to death and, you know, later being found innocent, things like that. But in this case, they obviously confess to their crimes. We know they're guilty. We know they tortured these people. I... I cannot believe what you're about to find out here in a little while. The only people that were not in court that day that were part of these cases were Arnold and Cheryl. Um, there were several reasons around why they were not in court that day. Um, if you want to delve into exactly what those are, like I said, you can read the book Evil Brothers. I just don't want to get into it because it sounds like Maybe some personal stuff was going on, and I don't want to put that out there for everyone to know. It's Maybe. not our business to put it out there. It's, it's their business and nobody else's, if you ask me. Exactly. So, if you choose to read that book, there's some more in there about it. But I did find out that since this, they have parted ways. Um, they are no longer together, but... They do both seem to be finding a way to move forward and just live life after this tragedy. Hmm. Here's the part that really boils my blood. Na well, I have this feeling if it's boiling your blood, it's going to eat me alive. Yeah. So this is part of the reason we heard about this on the news not too long ago. Nathaniel was released from prison in August 2018 in agreement with his plea agreement. He was released? Yeah. So, he is out walking the streets of Toledo. Gotta love it. Yeah, no. I do not like knowing that... Now, granted, we don't live in Toledo, but we do have family that lives there. And we have visited there often. And I do not like knowing that I very well or our children may have passed this man. And the unspeakable things he has done to others. I, it, it really aggravates me. However, I am under the impression that he is not able to maintain employment at this time. Because once his employers find out his history, he is very quickly fired. Hmm. I wonder why. Yeah. I can't say I blame him. You know, in most cases, I say when people get out of prison, they have paid their debt to society. You know, give them a chance. Let them move on. 
but in this case... They didn't pay their debt. I don't care. There, there is not a debt big enough to be paid in this case. He took the lives of others. As far as I'm concerned, he doesn't deserve to be living life outside of a jail cell. As far as I'm concerned, their debt is when they're six feet under and they were behind bars. Yeah. To me. Exactly. He is listed on the Ohio, the Ohio Sex Offender Registry, however. And like I said, he continues to live in West Central Toledo. Um, the one thing I do have to say is when they were talking on the news about this, they had received a letter that said it was from the extended Cook family. I don't know if it was confirmed that it was from someone or not. But they did say that the extended family of these brothers are receiving death threats and things of that nature. But the right, the person who wrote into the news station said that this part of the family feels tremendous empathy for the victims and their families. And they could not be more disgusted with Nathaniel and Anthony well, themselves. Well, yeah, they just made a bad name for everybody else. In their family. Exactly. And now they have to live with the consequences of what these two jackasses did to their names. Exactly. And so if you do decide to delve into this a little more on your own, I just ask that you take your anger out on Nathaniel and Anthony, not anyone else with the cook last name. Now, in these recent interviews on the news station... A few people had some other things to say. Cheryl shared a message for Nathaniel directly. He, she said, I have a scar going all the way down to my stomach, and I look at it often. You may have ruined me when I was 18, but I'm 57 years old now, and I'm not a victim anymore. I'm a survivor. In the end, you will meet your maker, and he will get you. You're right, Cheryl. He will get his in the end. Dawn's mom stated, I feel like I betrayed my child. I just always believed that in the 20 years they would find something else against Nathaniel. And you know, I can understand why she feels this way, but I also have to say, at the time, she felt like she was doing what was best for her child and stuff at that time. I hope that she finds a way to work through that pain because... She does not deserve to be in any more pain than she already is. No. No, she doesn't. Not one bit. Todd was also interviewed, and during this, he has thanked his faith for helping him heal through this, and has said he has forgiven the brothers, and he has moved on with his life. I didn't see much else from any of the other victims or their families, I do know in the case of Sonny, Connie Sue Thompson, I had looked her up trying to find some more information on her. And like we stated earlier, her mother did end up passing away before the cases. And from what I found, her siblings have also passed away. And just so you guys know, if you want to follow any more I did while searching this case again. I came across a Facebook page that Dawn's mom runs for her. 
if you just put her name into the search bar, Dawn Backus, um, in Facebook, you will come across that page. She updates it pretty often with pictures of Dawn and stories of her just trying to keep her memory alive. What most moms would do with their child. Yeah, I, it's got to be hard for her, and that's probably well, just... It's got to be. It's a good way for her to cope. Try to keep her memory alive, keep talking about her. If it's helping her move on, more power to her. Exactly. Well, that is the end of the Cook Brothers case. So, we made it through our first case. We um, did it. <laughs> to... I don't even have words for him anymore. I'm just, yeah. Yeah, and like we were stating earlier, I had no idea this had even happened. And to live fairly close to this. Especially knowing that you lived in this area for all your life. And now it just pops up. Yeah, and like I said, I believe the victims deserve to have a voice and their memory deserves to be kept alive. So, just wanted to put this out here because if we're living fairly close to where this happened and hadn't heard of it, I'm sure those of you who live further away probably have never heard of it either. Exactly. I would not put it past that there's other people haven't heard about it. We hope you enjoy, and we hope you come back next time. And remember, you never know who's lurking in your neighborhood. And remember, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash depravedpodcast. You can send us a Gmail at podcastdepraved at gmail.com. And we also have an Instagram at depraved.podcast. <laughs>